This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about this stuff. Big ideas uh, with all kinds of interesting, accomplished people of goodwill, in good faith. And today, it is super cool to be joined by a special co-host, Kim Yeagid, who was a guest on this show, uh, what, about a year or two ago? Kim is a writer, producer, storyteller, and coincidentally, a good friend from my hometown. Kim, how you doing? Nice to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. It's also an honor to say that TPNR is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Remember to subscribe if you haven't already and tell a friend, tell people about it. Word of mouth is the way that this show and these conversations grow and uh, we can include more people in the conversation, just like the one that we're having today with Robert Jensen. Robert Jensen is an emeritus professor of, in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas at Austin and a founding board member of the Third Coast Activist Resource Center. He collaborates with New Perennials Publishing and the New Perennials Project at Middlebury College. Professor Jensen joined the UT faculty in 1992 after completing his PhD in Media, media Ethics and Law in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Prior to his academic career, he worked as a professional journalist for a decade. At UT, he taught undergraduate and graduate courses in media law, ethics, and politics until he retired in 2018. In his writing and teaching, much of Dr. Jensen's work has analyzed pornography and the radical feminist critique of sexuality and men's violence. And he also has addressed questions of race through a critique of white privilege and institutionalized racism, along with his recent work focusing on the ecological crises. Dr. Jensen is a prolific writer. It was hard for me to research because there's a library of uh, of writing uh, for me to uh, for us to dive into, much of which hopefully we'll cover cover today. And it's um, an alternative and mainstream. Uh, and Dr. Jensen's also the author of many books. Most recently, "An Inconvenient Apocalypse: Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity," along with his co-author Wes Jackson. Bob. It is so nice to have you. I don't even know where to begin other than to ask you, how are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm doing fine and it's great to be with you both. And uh, I, I just wanna make the point that uh, the reason I've written so much is because I'm old and I don't have many friends, so I don't have anything else to do. So <laughs> don't be too impressed with that. I'm going to I'm going to disagree immediately because the way I know Bob is because he's a loving human being. I reached out to him. I'm going to guess now, I'm going to say it was 1998 or so, really? because he had written, uh, he had written, I, I came across an article of his in a collection of essays about pornography. And I wrote to him and he wrote back. And um, I think especially back then, that wasn't so typical. And we've kind of been in dialogue ever since. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because you, Kim, just uh, so listeners know, Kim brought uh, Dr. Jensen's name up at uh, a recent dinner that we had, and uh, I was immediately intrigued by it because th there's a level of independent thought clearly in all of your writing uh, that it's just it's it's so unique. So um, so that's how you met, and you, you've kept in touch. It's been almost 25 years now, I guess. It's a funny thought. Yeah, we've only been together in person, I think, once or twice. Um, but, but I, we've, yeah, go ahead. No, I remember well walking the streets of Manhattan with you yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
the reason I remember it so well is I'm incredibly cheap and I needed a belt and I found a belt from a street vendor for $5. It's funny what the human memory uh, dredges up, but I do very clearly remember that long conversation on the streets of New York with you. It was really exciting. So it's good to see you again, even if it's not in person. Likewise. I wanted to, um, if, if I can be obnoxious and lead, I wanted to talk about something that I've never actually spoken with Bob about. I wanted to start with all my bone shape hmm. because that's sort of where the reason when I was talking to you, Corey, where I was like, you have to talk to Bob. I, would you mind just telling us in your words what the book sure. is so-called about? Tell us, you know, tell us what the book is about. Yeah. So um, quick background. I grew up in a kind of run-of-the-mill Protestant church uh, in North Dakota as, as a young man. And I always say that my early experience with uh, religion was life-threatening because I was almost bored to death. In, in other words, it was a kind of uh, middle-class Christian upbringing where nothing is really at stake. And uh, like a lot of young people, especially in the 1970s, you know, the aftermath of the revolutionary spirit, I left religion behind. I couldn't see any point to it. Uh, later in life, when I was in Austin, Texas, teaching and doing a lot of political organizing, I happened to bump in to a very progressive Presbyterian church in Austin, where I realized most of the people there didn't hold anything like conventional theological views. If, in short, it was a, a mainstream Christian church where nobody believed in God. And, and I often um, have always I've been jealous of my Jewish friends because there's this concept of a secular Jew, someone who's part of the tradition, but doesn't necessarily hold those theological, uh, traditional theological views. And that's the kind of church this was. It was kind of a secular Christian church. It was a vehicle for political organizing, for progressive thought. And so I joined. And because it's my nature to write about my life, I wrote about joining a church, even though I wasn't a, a believer in a sense. And immediately the regional uh, organization of the Presbyterian Church tried to kick me out. <laughs> and so that gave rise to that book where I thought, for a lot of people, we don't necessarily want to hold what I would call supernatural beliefs, that there's a God in the sky who's directing our lives, or that there really was a virgin birth, or that Jesus really was resurrected in a literal sense. But there are people who are connected to a tradition, and that tradition has good and bad points. And like any tradition, we work with it to try to accentuate the positive. And I thought, well, this is kind of an interesting experiment. So I, I tried to write about what it meant to take the tradition seriously, but not to have to subscribe to these supernatural beliefs. And I ended up belonging to that church for about a decade and doing good work there, I think. Uh, I eventually did leave, but um, it was a book about that experiment and that experience. You sort of led into what, what what is my next question. Why, I was going to ask you if you're still involved. So I'm curious to know why you left and how your spirituality has evolved now. So I used to say, I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. <laughs> and what I meant by that is there's a lot of people who say I'm spiritual, but not religious. And to me, um, I don't think about the world in, in a spiritual way. I'm a, a good old fashioned lefty materialist. I think, you know, there's matter and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, our lives are richer than that. And so church is one place to investigate that. And um, it was a very positive experience for me. But eventually, like many things, we, um, we move on. We see that we've accomplished what we can within that context. 
and at some point it just seemed to me that my political life uh, was going to be better served by by moving outside the church. There were some different disagreements uh, I had with members of the that community, uh, especially around the sort of radical feminist critique of the ideology of the transgender movement, which didn't sit well there. But you know, uh, life is an experiment, and you keep at it until it doesn't work anymore, and then you move on. And that's what I did. I, I think of it a lot in the same way I think of my life in the university. I mean, it was incredibly productive for me to go through graduate school to, to have the opportunity to teach. But at some point, I needed to move out of the university and into other endeavors. And that's what I did. It's it's interesting to me because the, the parallel between your storyline and Corey's storyline, I know you said mm -hmm. that you've now left the church, but you both took you both made very brave decisions and that part of your community kind of ostracized you, right? Like when, like, right, like you, you kind of took a lot of flack for joining the church, right? Yeah, it, it's funny. So, and maybe Corey would have this experience. In everything I ever wrote about religion, I made it clear that I wasn't embracing those, what I'm calling supernatural claims. But some of my lefty friends just couldn't wrap their head around that. I remember giving a talk and a friend of mine from the left said, why are you embracing all this crazy, you know, talk about God. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm not embracing every aspect of traditional Christian theology, but he couldn't compute that one could identify with a Christian tradition and yet hold, you know, disparate beliefs. And so in my experience, and I've been part of lots of different political and, and local communities, uh, people get very set in what it means to be X, what it means to be a lefty, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a feminist. And if you move outside of that and try to play with the definitions, uh, people get very nervous. And I don't say that in a kind of sanctimonious way. I'm sure I do it too in ways I'm not aware of. But, you know, it's a, I don't know if you two have noticed, it's a crazy world out there. And one of the ways <laughs> we deal with a crazy world is to have some clarity about ourselves and where we belong. Human beings need a sense of belonging. And, you know, sometimes I think the left especially believes it's uh, exempt from human nature. <laughs> and I saw it on the left as much as I see it on the right, that kind of, you know, it's often called a tribal mentality. I don't necessarily like that term, but that, you know, you're with us or you're against us notion is not unique to any particular spiritual political tradition. It's just part of the human, I would call it in some sense, it's part of human frailty, you know? It's a big confusing world and we need to hold on to something and we do it in all sorts of different ways. Some of them not very productive or, or I think very healthy, but we still do it. Corey, will you talk about, because one of my, I, I'm kind of like the people who, who Bob is talking about with this conundrum of, of why do you stay? Like it sounds like on some level, Bob left. But Corey, you stay. I mean, a little bit, like, tell me more because we've spoken about it a little bit, like a little bit, you're kind of a little bit less formally in church. Like you still clearly identify as a as a Christian, but correct me if I'm wrong, you're not so much a church going Christian so much, but I, I there's sort of like a two part question. One is why are you tied to it if there's so much that you're in conflict with, or, or just could you talk about where you are and, and how you evolve and how you see yourself now. Yeah, so I can't shake my theological convictions, regardless of 
I think we talked about this. My brother, one of my brother's favorite bumper stickers is Jesus may love you, but everybody else thinks you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> I, I find I, I'm at odds oftentimes when I get ensconced in when I, over the last 20 plus years, when I've gotten ensconced in church communities, especially the ones in Santa Clarita, California, um, which is very uh, dominated by John MacArthur, his, uh, his school and, and uh, disciples of, of MacArthur's. Uh, I, I just don't find that that particular theology is consistent with the Bible that I read. But I'm so compelled by the rabbi uh, Jesus that I encounter in scripture. So I, I just can't seem to shake that. I had a conversation with a friend recently, actually a, a professor at, at um, Fuller, who was describing one of his students that could only find himself at home in terms of church community at a synagogue. And I, I identify with that. I grew up, um, Bob, in an observantly Jewish family. Mm -hmm. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. And I don't think that would be inconsistent with my theological convictions of a risen Jesus. So I'm still, I'm still working it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. I do feel, uh, I feel a conviction to, as you're, as you're talking about a sense of community, uh, you refer often to um, one of my favorite writers, Wendell Berry, uh, mm -hmm. And reading his fiction and his nonfiction, his poetry, I'm compelled to find who I am contextually within a, a, a people, within a community of people. So I guess the answer is I don't really have an answer other than to say I still have deep theological convictions, um, but I am at odds with you know, a, a lot of us, you know, we, we can read studies from PRRI or any number of studies about American evangelicalism. And uh, you, you can imagine why I might be at odds with uh, a, a lot of what that represents. Yeah. If I could tell a story about my co-author that I think really gets to this, you mentioned my last book was with Wes Jackson, who in the world of sustainable agriculture is an important figure, one of the founders of that movement. Uh, he started something called the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, but he, he grew up as a farm boy in Kansas and his mother was deeply Methodist. And so he grew up with that framework. Uh, he went on to get a PhD in genetics and he's now like me, kind of a secular Christian. But I remember a friend of his saying that uh, some people complain Wes sees the world too much as a scientist. And this friend said, my mother says Wes is, Wes is really still a Methodist at heart. She said, I've caught him at it many times, <laughs> you know, and, and Wes would, would both laugh at that as he did, and he would agree with it, that when you're raised in a tradition, you absorb a certain way of thinking about the world. It doesn't mean you believe everything. It's not so much about belief. It's about a kind of worldview. And, and Wes would say, and I would say also, that we carry with us a, a sort of Christian way of seeing the world, for instance. Uh, in a in a way that I don't think is exclusive, right? it, and it's, it doesn't mean I also can't absorb Jewish teaching or Muslim teaching or whatever. Uh, but, you know, just the idea that uh, a phrase we use in this last book, there but for the grace of God go I. It's a great thought. It, it says, <laughs> it's a reminder, you know, if you're, if you're living on the right side of the Lord, if you're doing everything right, don't forget that if not, but for a few lucky breaks in your life, you could be on that other side, you know? And we extend it to say, uh, there are but for the grace of God go we, that as a, you know, a community, a nation, um, 
we're all the product, not just of our own virtue. I mean, that's what we'd like to think. I'm successful because I'm virtuous. Um, there's a whole lot of luck in this world that in that theological way is, is called the grace of God. But you can also just think about it as, you know, the way things played out. And I think about that a lot. The older I get, I guess you could say the older I get, the more religious I get, even though I have no religious affiliation. You know, I think about that every time I, every time I see someone who is, you know, going to jail or, or someone who politically I think is reprehensible. I think about that phrase there, but for the grace of God go I. I, I happen, I often go back. I met a, a man when I started graduate school, a friend of mine named Jim Coplin who single-handedly, I think, turned my life around. Uh, he's the guy who helped me see the value of radical feminism. He, he, he provided a real model for me about how to live decently as a man in a patriarchal society, for instance. Well, what if I hadn't met Jim Copland? You know, what if, you know, when I called the office, he didn't pick up the phone, somebody else did? Who would I be today? Well, I think if, if we all reflect on our lives, we can see that. And uh, we should be a little more uh, reluctant to sing our own praises. Uh, and, and I think that's one of those theological insights that's essential. And you can find it in lots of different traditions. I just happen to come out of a Christian tradition. Since you brought up Jim Copland, I was going to ask you about him. Could you tell us a little bit more about who he was? And in particular, give us, when you say radical ideas, uh, can you contextualize what you mean by yeah. radical? Who is Jim Copland and what do you mean by radical ideas? Yeah, Jim was uh, one of the two or three most important people in my life. He died about 10 years ago. Uh, I met him when uh, I went back to graduate school. He had already re he retired very early from a university teaching career, and he dedicated the rest of his life to political organizations, community service. He was a really inspirational figure for a lot of people, both his students originally and then people like me he met outside of that. And, and Jim had... Uh, he'd gone through the civil rights movement as a white person. He'd gone through the feminist movement as a man. He'd gone through the anti-war movement as an American. He had a lot of experience of being in positions of unearned power and privilege and having to be accountable. And, and that model was really important to me. He also was intellectually just an extraordinary fellow, both broad thinker and a deep thinker. And uh, a lot of my early intellectual work really uh, I used to say, Jim Copland talks and I write it down and then I write an article. Uh, and and Jim was also uh, a very private person. He didn't want to have a public profile. He would never let me put his name on an article uh, or anything. But after he died, I wrote a book about him called uh, Plain Radical. And that title, uh, by plain, I just meant he was an ordinary person. He wasn't uh, He wasn't famous, but he also... He had an aversion to fads, you know. He was just a very plain living, frugal person. And by radical, we we meant it in the kind of traditional sense of, of going to the root, of looking at systems and saying, what is at the core of the problem of this system, whether it's patriarchy or white supremacy or capitalism. And instead of saying, well, how do we make this bad system a little less, you know, painful? How do we think about maybe, you know, more revolutionary change? Uh, and, and Jim was an interesting person because when we think about radicals and revolutionaries, we think about people, you know, uh, with a machine gun or people who are out in the streets with a bullhorn calling to bring down the system. And Jim 
was as radical as anyone I know, but very quiet in the way he went about it. And it's a reminder that there are lots of different ways to be part of progressive change, right? Some people do like to be out front, do like to, you know, take risks. And there are times in history where, you know, revolutionary violence has been, from my point of view, an appropriate response to really hideous repression, you know. But Jim worked quietly in the community, helping people uh, achieve their goals more than, you know, putting himself out front. And I meet so few people like that. And I have to say, I, I never could live up to Jim's example myself, I don't think, that I wanted to write about him. Uh, because those kind of people who are so essential in communities rarely make the headlines. And kind of ironic, well, not ironically, but maybe just naturally, as I've gotten older, I'm now 64 years old. Uh, I'm very excited I get to go on Medicare this summer. You know, it's a big step in my life. Um, I have realized that my own work is less important to me than helping younger people. And I've, I've been working with a lot of younger people lately, writing, editing uh, with them, and trying to help them realize their potential as, as real leaders. And it's been, it's been kind of fun to see myself get old and, and start to approximate my, my great friend Copland a little more. Uh, he'd be, I think he'd be happy to see it if he were still with us. I've heard you discuss, uh, you also mentioned an inconvenient apocalypse mm -hmm. and, uh, I've heard you discuss that work, how it came about in a way of, okay, so we're getting older now and your co-author Wes is, uh, Wes Jackson is, is your elder. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes it takes uh, our elders to say some of the hard things. Um, could you discuss a little bit about uh, Inconvenient Apocalypse, yeah. what uh, the concept of fewer and less and yeah. the four hard questions? Sure. So Wes Jackson, first of all, I often describe him as the most important environmentalist no one's ever heard of. Within sustainable ag circles, he's kind of legendary, but outside of that, he's not well known. Uh, I started reading Wes's work back in the late 1980s when my friend Jim Copland handed me this book. And he said, if we're going to be friends, you need to read this. And Wes wrote not only about agriculture, but about the larger ecological worldview. And it was really my first exposure to thinking like that. I was, you know, a kid raised in a city. I didn't think much about it. I didn't know anything about agriculture. I'm from North Dakota. Everybody thinks I must be a farmer, but I hadn't set foot on a farm as a kid. Um, and so I read Wes for, you know, 20 years before I ever had a chance to meet him. And when I met him, we were both heading toward the end of our, our career, him as the president of the Land Institute and me as a teacher. And we just found we hit it off. So we started collaborating and that led to several book projects to a podcast. And this most recent book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, was really me, I think, saying to Wes, you know, if you take your own work seriously, Wes, you have to be able to say, we're in real trouble right now and there ain't no solutions around the corner. And he agreed and we, we had a great time on that book. Uh, before I get to fewer and less, uh, because we both come out of these Christian backgrounds, we do use a lot of religious metaphors. We talk about the apocalyptic. We talk about uh, the concept of a saving remnant. And, and Wes has long taken that concept of grace, usually thought of as God's grace, and tried to think about what it means to be serious about ecospheric grace, to think of 
the larger living world uh, as our creator. And so among those four hard questions you talk about, one of them is size. What is the sustainable size of a human population at what level of consumption? And that's about the hardest question you can imagine. Uh, a lot of people want to believe, oh, we can sustain 8 billion people on this planet as long as we get a more equitable system and as long as we get a little more democracy to blunt the influence of the oil company. You know, there's a lot of uh, well-intentioned claims that my, my friends in the environmental movement and on the left make, and I think they're just misguided. I just think they're quite frankly delusional. I don't think the world can support 8 billion people at anything like the current level of aggregate consumption for much longer. And so the question is, what is the sustainable size of the human population and what level of consumption goes along with that? Well, I'm not a, you know, a clairvoyant, so I can't predict, nor can anyone else. The ecologists I read who I respect suggest that that population we're going to eventually get to is probably around two, three billion at the most. Okay. Well, you don't need to know the exact number the earth can sustain to know it's going to be a lot fewer people than are here now. And it's going to be consuming a lot less energy and other material resources. Now, the reason that's such a hard question is no one has a plan for how to get to that sustainable level of population. And no one really knows how to, to say collectively, we are going to start using a lot less energy because energy, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, really wasteful uses of energy, you know, billionaires buying yachts, I think uh, we can agree is a wasteful use of energy. But a lot of the uses of energy in the contemporary world just make life a lot easier. Right? Um, you know, I, I drive to my post office, I live in a rural area, and I have to go to the post office to get my mail. And I drive there every day. And I'm glad I don't have to walk there every day, <laughs> because I would then go get my mail about once a month, probably. Um, so those kind of things we have to come to terms with. So we don't have to know exactly what a sustainable human population will be or what level of consumption, but we know it's going to be fewer people and less stuff. And that's the, the thrust of the book is, you know, Wes and I are old. He's 86, I'm 64, we're both retired. Uh, we don't have to worry about who's gonna be angry at us. And so those hard questions, I think, are best asked by people in that position. Uh, and that's what we set out to do. And the book has had basically two kind of reactions. People who have been thinking about these things and find it hard to find places to talk about it. You know? I've had so many people tell me, you know, when I try and talk about this at you know, a family dinner, people shut me down. You know? uh, they're grateful for the book because it gives voice to what's already in their head. A lot of other friends of mine uh, who are still, I think, in more traditional political and environmental, you know, trenches. They hate the book because they think it it's, you know, counterproductive in trying to rally the masses to, you know, electric vehicles and whatever else uh, people think is going to solve the problem. So uh, that's that's where Wes and I have been and, and we're still going that way. Wes is working on uh, a new book that draws partly on his experience as a, a farm boy from the Depression on what it means to downpower, not just in the sort of abstract, but what does it really mean in everyday life to live with less energy? And uh, that's kind of exciting work. I can't wait to, to see what he produces. 
you just kind of mentioned something that might take us away from this topic. So if it goes too far off from where you want to go, Corey, but we can also save it for later. But you, Bob, you kind of indirectly referenced like talking about things people don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And and over the course of your career, as I've watched it, that's happened multiple times. Yeah. And and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about yeah. Why do you do it? Is it irresponsible of you? Is it responsible? Like, like, yeah. um, uh, just, I think you know the different things that I'm talking about. I, but I just, I think sure. it's a very interesting idea when you say there are goals of certain movements. And, and, and to me, part of what I think draws me to you and your work so much is you have a complete and total, tell me if I'm wrong, attachment to truth. <laughs> Well, truth is a tricky subject. Everybody thinks they've got their their hands on the truth. Uh, but you're right. I, In fact, I'm the only one who actually knows the truth. So anybody <laughs> listening, you know, sign up on my website. This is this is truth central. No. Well, maybe maybe let me say it differently then. You yeah. you, you don't want to cheat. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and I think I think that's like like a lot of other people are willing to be like, we're going to ignore that portion of the show. Yeah because it's counter to my goals and yeah. you you're very unwilling to do that. Yeah. So I will say this, um, and I don't mean this in a glib fashion. Um, uh, I've written, in fact, I I'm working on a new book where I developed this and, uh, I've long said that the secret to my success is that I'm mediocre, but I know it. And what I mean by that is I, you know, I spent 30 years in academic life where everybody's trying to be the smartest person in the room. Everybody's trying to come up with a big new theory. You know, everybody, the, the coin of the realm in academia is being a big thinker. And I realized from a very early point, partly through the help of Jim Copland, that I wasn't a big thinker. I was just a good workaday teacher who could, you know, figure out how to talk about complex things to 18 year olds. And frankly, I think that's quite an achievement. I mean, I'm proud of what I was able to do as a teacher. But I also knew from the beginning that I didn't, I didn't need to be the guy who was always, you know, out front. And what that meant is that I got very good at finding smart people, reading their work, and trying to figure out how to put it into plain language for both my students and for a general audience. That's what attracted me to Wes. Wes is a lot smarter than me. That's fine with me. Good. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to translate some of Wes's work for the general public. Uh, and as a result, I didn't have quite so much ego in some of my work. I, I'm not saying I don't have ego or I don't, you know, find it rewarding when people like what I do. Um, but I kind of saw my role as a translator more than an original thinker. And the first place that happened was with the pornography movement. So uh, just for a quick history, in 1988, when I went back to graduate school and started studying this, the feminist critique of pornography probably pioneered most by Andrea Dworkin, an incredible writer and thinker. I mean, I read Andrea's work and I said, okay, my job is not to try to match Andrea Dworkin. My job is to get men to understand why Andrea Dworkin is so powerful. Uh, and I, I happened to get into that just about the time the feminist movement was turning its back on the anti-pornography argument and a, a more pro-pornography position was emerging in women's studies spaces. And so my first work, both politically and intellectually, was to try to to make the case for uh, an analysis that was quickly being discarded. And so, you know, I, I got a lot of experience of being, <laughs> you know, but 
I knew that what Andrew Dworkin and the other feminist critics had put forward, I knew at some level that it was right. And it's not just because intellectually I could read their work and, and see it as powerful, but emotionally and personally, it spoke to me. I, I've often said that, you know, men are trained to see feminism as a threat. But what I learned from Andrea Dworkin is that feminism, especially the most radical feminism, is not a threat to men. It's a gift. It helped me understand my own life better. And so that was my initial experience, putting forward ideas that were largely rejected, not only by, you know, the dominant culture, but a lot of my friends, especially friends on the left. And, and once, especially once I, I got tenure, I got permanent employment at the university. It seemed to me that if people like me didn't take on controversial and potentially unpopular subjects, who was going to do it? I mean, I had pretty much guarantee, as long as I didn't sell drugs to students, I had a lifetime job, right? And that is an incredible privilege. So I had, a, you know, financial security, uh, and I had a lot of freedom to read and think about what I wanted to. And what's the point of having all that freedom if you don't use it to go where you believe the truth leads? And, and I was kind of flippant about the idea of truth, but I do believe that when one sees a compelling argument, which in everyday language we talk about as the truth, that it's not only your right to talk about it, it's your obligation. And I think I had an obligation precisely because I was white, I was male, I was a US citizen, I was a comfortable middle-class professional and I had job security. And so it seemed to me to be um, just the obvious thing to do. That said, I've lost friends over things I've written. Uh, I've been pushed out of certain communities. Um, you know, at the end of my tenure in Austin, I was pretty much not welcome in left circles because of my writing on the, the transgender question. And I'm not going to say that didn't hurt. Uh, you know, I still miss a lot of people and feel kind of betrayed by them. Uh, but that's life. I mean, I have had that experience outside of politics, too. I was going to ask you about that. There have been a number of occasions when you've gotten pretty serious pushback mm -hmm. uh, on your work uh, from within the very communities that you might have identified. Yeah. How do you manage that mentally, emotionally, and why do you keep going back for more? Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably the most extreme actually wasn't from the left. It was right after 9-11 when I wrote critically about the U.S., the mad rush to war in first Afghanistan, then Iraq, and the sort of right-wing uh, media industry in Texas came down on me pretty hard. So, you know, we can self-reflect about why we do what we do, but the fact is we really don't know ourselves very well. It's part of the human condition. We think we understand ourselves and, and often we find out we didn't. But my best attempt to answer that is one kind of intellectually, which is to say, as Kim was pointing out, if you feel you've stumbled upon a compelling way to understand reality, Right? When you think you've got your, your hands around something we, we're going to call the truth, um, you should uh, you should speak it loudly from the rooftop. And I believe in that as a, a principle. But, you know, principles aren't the only thing that motivate us. And, and here, to the best that I can kind of self-reflect, I grew up as a pretty weird kid uh, for all sorts of reasons. And I got used very early to not being part of the, the beautiful people, right? I got used pretty quickly to being an outsider. Uh, and so the idea that people might reject you 
I think psychologically wasn't as difficult for me as it is for some people uh, because of, for lack of a better way to say it, I got kicked around a lot as a kid, right? And that kind of, it, it bruises you, but it also can toughen you. And I think, you know, that's the most honest answer I can give. Um, you know, by the time I was, you know, my last couple of years in high school, I took a certain amount of pride in being a weird kid. And instead of clamoring to try to be one of the beautiful people, which I knew I could never do, I, I did what a lot of kids do. I embraced the idea of being an outsider. And I think that continued into my adult life. Um, I just wasn't going to worry about being on the outside, uh, having never been on the inside. Uh, uh, and yeah, that's like I say, that could be all wrong. I could be deluding myself, but that's that's my best account of why I keep doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I tend to get um, I, I retrench. Uh, there, there have been times when I've spoken uh, an independent thought, mm -hmm. not too long ago, about a year ago, uh, when um, Dave Chappelle had his uh, special on Netflix, mm -hmm. The Closer. Uh, that it, speaking of uh, transgender movement, I was advocating not necessarily for what he said or that I enjoyed the, the special, uh, but I was advocating for the freedom of expression uh, mm -hmm. and that we should be able to have hard conversations and, and grapple with yeah. uh, difficult uh, issues like this. I got so much pushback that no, we just can't fathom what uh, that yeah. special and, and it needs to be canceled if you will to oversimplify yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, because of the pushback that I got from people that I consider dear friends, Man, I, it took me a while to, um, my, my instinct was to curl up in a ball and just go away for a while. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's so many things that we could explore. Um, you know, we could, we could explore this further, but <laughs> it's like a, a treasure. I, I don't know what to choose from, but Kim, you, you had some really interesting questions uh, regarding critical approaches to media and power. I'd love for you to if you, if you don't mind diving into that. It's actually a good transition because, you know, again, I um, the two topics that I kind of wanted to talk about today, which are things that Bob and I don't normally talk about, one was religion and the other is journalism. Mm -hmm. And I was just sort of wondering if you could talk a bit, like what, what does journalism mean to you? Like, what is a journalist? Do you still consider yourself to be a journalist? A journalist? Where do you get your news? That yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um journalism you know a lot of weird kids in high school got saved by either uh, theater debate journalism or band right? I, I always say the, the 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 weird kids in school usually fit into one of those four topics and for me it was journalism and so um journalism was very uh important to the way i started to see myself uh looking back uh one thing i realized is because i was sort of a strange kid and 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 psychologically, the, the diagnosis is I was messed up. I was a messed up kid, you know. Uh, journalism was great because you got to be part of the world, but as an observer. And that was really, I think, attractive to me, actually to a lot of journalists who, who are both aggressive in certain ways, but also fundamentally shy. And so journalism was, for me, a way to start to understand the world. And I, I did that work through my 20s until I realized, uh, I probably should shift. Uh, and I learned a lot in journalism and I'm grateful for it. But one of the things once I went back to graduate school and started trying to think more critically was I realized how journalism trains you to think you don't have any politics, 
to think you're above the fray and can report on it. And the longer I reflected on that, I realized, no, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean journalism is nothing but the expression of one's political views, uh, but you have to factor that in. And so that began uh, a kind of critique that I offered to my students while teaching in a journalism school. There are protocols, there are you know, best practices in journalism when you're trying to find out what really happened. But don't forget that you're a person, you're part of a culture, you're bringing a perspective to this, and you need to be able to critically self-reflect about that as well. So I both love journalism and am often angered to distraction by what I see as insufficient journalism. I'm not going to say bad journalism. There is, of course, a lot of bad journalism. Uh, and and you can see that easily. But I mean, you know, the journalism of the New York Times. You ask me where I get my news. I read the New York Times religiously every morning. Why? Not because it's the arbiter of truth, but because they have the most extensive journalistic operation in the world, and they have some incredibly talented people. And I read it, but I read it with a critical eye about how things are framed. And that's what we all have to do. Uh, you know, I'm kind of lucky I have the time to read a lot and a lot of experience to help provide that critical view. But it's not, it's not easy, of course, to, to know where to, to find reliable information. But I have a kind of love-hate relationship with journalism. A lot of my friends on the left love to denounce the mainstream media, right? Mainstream media is, a, is an insult. And I can be critical of the way the mainstream media frames certain issues, for instance. But I also know that the journalists working in those mainstream institutions are incredibly hardworking, often brilliant, and, and doing great work. And so I go back and forth on, on journalism a lot. Uh, I don't really think of myself as a journalist anymore because I think I have spent most of my um, life for the last 30 years publicly identified with movements. And I think the one thing about journalism, it is it has to be independent. And uh, that means not only, you know, independent from political parties, but independent from movements and independent from capitalist, you know, <laughs> greed pigs. Uh, and it's hard to do. But when I write now, I try to write intelligently. I try to write fairly. I try to evaluate evidence clearly. But I do it with a framework that I try to also be clear about. So. I would say I'm a I'm a writer who does journalism like work sometimes is probably the best way to say it. The way you just describe what journalism is makes me think that there's not one journalist on the face of the earth now. <laughs> no, I, I, I do distinguish between people who commit their lives to an independent position from which they can observe the world. Not that it's completely without its pressures. You know, the, anybody at the New York Times will tell you what the pressures are for how to present the news. But I very clearly am outside of that. So I do still make a distinction between journalism and people who write for a, an overt political purpose. Now, of course, you could ask, well, why do I write in favor of the feminist anti-pornography movement, for instance? Well, it's because I think the evidence supports that analysis. And in, in fact, I think the, the evidence has become more and more clear that the feminist anti-pornography analysis is, is very compelling, that it's the, you know, the right way to think about the issue. 
so you're right that the lines blur pretty quickly. Uh, I would never, for political purposes, write something I know not to be true, for instance. Yeah. Uh, that's a kind of baseline ethical norm, not just for journalists, I hope, but for people. <laughs> but of course, you know, that line gets crossed a lot too. Do you think ethics of journalism in today's culture is still, like I remember taking an ethics of journalism class in undergrad, is it still relevant today? Is it still, you yeah, know? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, of course, the media landscape is so dramatically different from the moment I, you know, signed on at a newspaper 40 years ago. And that makes everything more complicated. But I do think that a few basic things, most primarily being a commitment to independence, that you don't knowingly shape a message to fit a political perspective and a commitment to the best rendering of the facts that you can come up with. Right? Now, both of those are complex. Uh, the example I always use is the run-up to the Iraq war. Right? All those mainstream journalists who parodied, parodied the Bush administration and the Democrats in Congress, uh, the pro-war line, they thought they were doing good independent uh, reporting, but they were trapped within a political system in which, because all the elites agreed, there was really no speaking outside of the elite consensus, with a few exceptions. There were journalists who did that. Uh, and so, you know, every one of those New York Times reporters who wrote stories that I think turned out to be essentially fraudulent <laughs> weren't doing it to help the war effort. They were doing it because they were trapped within a set of professional practices they couldn't see beyond because of the way the political world was lining up for war. Well, we can reflect on that. We should learn from it. It doesn't mean ethics don't matter. It means it's just always been a complicated question. There's the uh, contemporary issue, Kim, you pointed out uh, that the gender identity of the person responsible for the shooting in Nashville a few days ago, mm -hmm. do you think it's ethical to discuss that, uh, the, the gender identity of the shooter in Nashville? Yes, I think that this is one of those issues which exposes some of the contradictions within the transgender movement. So, of course, if anyone is a, a victim of violence and identifies as transgender, uh, that's a legitimate part of the story because sometimes those acts of violence are linked to that transgender identity. Right? If someone is a perpetrator of a crime and identifies as transgender, it seems to me completely reasonable to examine whether that transgender identity was any part of the motivation of the perpetrator, just like we would investigate whether it was the motivation of the person who perpetrated a crime against someone who identifies as transgender. Uh, of course, you don't wanna do it in sensational terms. You wanna do it carefully. You wanna make sure there's you know, a factual record. Um, but I think that the transgender movement has been somewhat hypocritical here by saying, we can't, you, you can't talk about that, or it's, it's not clear, or, you know, uh, it just doesn't seem to me to be very productive. It doesn't mean that the shooter in Nashville was motivated to commit those murders because of some connection to a transgender identity. It doesn't mean that for sure, but you can't know that without investigation. And that's what journalism is committed to investigation. Um, and so 
we'll see what plays out. I don't make any assumptions right now, but I think more generally, the media and and people in general, people who aren't part of the trans movement, they don't know what how to make sense of some of this, right? including they don't know how to make sense of some of the basic claims of the transgender movement, which is that, uh, you know, if I were to put it in my own context, I am biologically male. Right? And if I say to you, well, I, I'm actually female, uh, a lot of people simply can't fathom what that means. And I think the reason they can't fathom it is because it, it's, it's not obvious what it means. Right? So there's a whole lot of claims the trans movement makes that are, I think, legitimately open to discussion, but the movement has tried to shut down that discussion and suggest that anybody who asks those questions or challenges those assumptions is somehow a bigot, is somehow hateful. I mean, I've been called bigoted, hateful, transphobic more times than I can count, and I still don't know what that means because I, I ask people, point to something in my writing, and you know, I've written extensively about this, that seems bigoted, hateful, or, or transphobic, that is based in hatred or fear of trans-identified people. And I don't think there is anything because I know I don't feel those emotions. Uh, but, uh, you know, my main complaint about this is that I don't expect everybody to agree with me and I invite debate. I love people challenging me. But for the most part, what I have have received is not debate, challenge and uh, a discussion about the actual content of my writing. What I've received is basically denunciation. You've written this, you are therefore obviously bad, and therefore I don't have to take you seriously. Just to give you an example, a, a rape crisis center invited me to do a talk about the relationship of pornography to men's violence. I've spoken about this for you know 35 years. Uh, I was happy to do it. We were gonna do it remotely. It was a very exciting opportunity for me. And uh, a month after the initial conversation, uh, I had to be disinvited, I was told, because some people involved in the center objected to my writing on the trans issue. And there was no articulation of what was wrong with my writing. It was simply, I had written critically about the trans movement, therefore I was unacceptable in their space. And um, the woman who had invited me very reluctantly had to disinvite me. And I, you know, I understood why. Uh, I don't agree with the motivation behind it, but that doesn't advance anybody's understanding. To simply say somebody who has an argument I don't agree with must be silenced, even though that argument I would suggest is coherent. I mean, agree or disagree with what I've written, it's not hard to understand. And it's based on a certain conception of human biology and the nature of culture, especially culture in patriarchy. Uh, you can agree or disagree, but to simply denounce it doesn't advance anybody's interest, including, I would argue, it doesn't advance the interests of trans-identified people. Right? We need to deepen our understanding of why people experience what is commonly called gender dysphoria, right? Some mismatch between the sex of your body and how you feel as a person. That's a psychological condition. It's very distressing for, for people who experience it. How are we gonna understand it more deeply if we shut down any discussion about the cause of it? You know, and the, the transgender movement would have to acknowledge 
uh, it proposes all sorts of treatments and public policies, even though no one has any understanding of, you know, what doctors would call the etiology of transgenderism, the causes. Nobody has a clue where, where this comes from. And yet there are, you know, I think potentially very dangerous treatments using drugs, cross-sex hormones, and the surgical destruction of otherwise healthy tissue that are being promoted to respond to this condition without any understanding of the actual origins of the condition. And to me, that doesn't advance the interests of people who identify as trans. Um, and so there's a lot to, to deal with. And I understand it's emotional, especially for people who do identify as trans. But, you know, I don't see any way to a deeper understanding of it by shutting down the conversation. And how do you respond to the assertion that you saying this stuff is giving complete and total ammunition to the people who you're probably, I'm assuming that mm -hmm. you're not in favor. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, not only right-wing, but you know, reactionary right-wing politicians and pundits have taken this up and are proposing legislation that I sometimes agree with and sometimes find abhorrent, right? Uh, they're certainly using it in the so-called culture wars not to deepen our understanding, but to, you know, gain political advantage. And I speak out against that all the time. The fact that you agree, let, let's take an example of whether men who identify as women, what are commonly called trans women, should be allowed to compete in athletic competition for women, okay? I, I don't believe they should for reasons I think I can justify quite easily. I take seriously the, the value of women's sports and want to protect the integrity of women's sports. Okay. There are right-wing politicians who are proposing legislation that is consistent with that. And on that, I agree. Uh, other things they say, I don't agree. Uh, largely because most of those right-wing politicians come out of a very patriarchal worldview, which I disagree with. Right? But that doesn't mean that I automatically disagree with everything they say. Uh, you know, it's the world is too complicated for this. And everything, of course, is being reduced to, you know, you're either with us or against us. Um, I did some writing recently about the the drag queen question, the so-called drag story hour when drag queens read to children in libraries. Well, there's a longstanding feminist critique of drag that says, listen, this is basically men, you know, caricaturing women, playing with the most outrageous you know, symbols of women's oppression, you know, makeup and clothing and everything. And women have been uh, critiquing drag for half a century, right? And in the piece I wrote, I compared it to blackface, right? How whites mimicking, you know, stereotypical black behavior is no longer accepted. But for some reason, you know, what some people have called woman face, you know, drag is accepted. Right. Well, a whole lot of right-wing politicians love to critique drag right now, but they don't critique it from the same place. And, you know, I, I can't be responsible for the, the, the speech and the proposals of reactionary right-wing people. Um, it can't be the reason that I shut up. Uh, so it's just one more of these incredibly complicated and difficult aspects of contemporary political debate yeah yeah i i resent when a, a figure like tucker carlson 
uh, hops on an issue uh, and and sort of it, it it feels to me like he's hijacking what should mm. be a much more nuanced yeah. conversation. Um, I, coincidentally, I, I should point out that I've become uh, increasingly friendly. Uh, I'm nurturing a relationship with a professor, Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa, who mm. is a trans man. I uh, used mm -hmm. to be Dr. Robin Espinosa. And uh, not so coincidentally, we've been talking about this concept of oppositional politics and oppositional thinking that, you know, once uh, my enemy uh, begins to uh, talk, take a certain position, well, I must be on the other side. Yeah. You know, it, um, uh, gosh, there's so many, um, so many things I want to talk to you about, yeah. but I, I feel like we have to land this plane. I want to <laughs> share a quote from um, All My Bones Shake. Uh, that will um, help us uh, wind this down. You say, so we have forthright fundamentalists, religious and secular, eager to draw lines in the sand, along with receding relativists, religious and secular, happy to bury their heads in the same sand. Meanwhile, there are lots of people looking for other ways to engage these questions, people who find the answers from all these camps to be inadequate. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's very much in the spirit of, of what we're trying to do yeah. here. So let me let me start to wind down by asking you this. It's the uh, my, my TPNR question. Mm -hmm. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, to have better conversations with, or, or even to nurture relationships with people across our differences, people who think differently than we do, have different yeah. beliefs than we do, get their news uh, from different sources than we do? How can we do better at talking politics and religion without yeah. killing each other? Is it, is it even possible? Yeah, I think my first rule would be withhold judgment until you have more information. Um, and the reason I say that is, as I mentioned, I'm from North Dakota. North Dakota used to be a kind of moderate state, conservative, but, you know, in a in a kind of quiet way. And it's now basically a Trumper state politically. And going back to North Dakota, I reflexively want to explain to people who voted for Donald Trump why that was a very bad idea. Uh, and that assumes that I know why they voted for Trump. It doesn't mean I, I back off from my critique of Trump and Trumpism and the current, I would say, irrational reactionary nature of Republican politics. But I need a lot more information before I can really understand a Trump voter. And of course, when you listen, you realize there's lots of different reasons. Doesn't mean I agree with the reasons, but I, I'm going to have a, an easier time talking to that person if I understand more what motivates them. And that's a, an awareness that we're all motivated by both rational and irrational um, desires. I mean, I can tell you why I vote for the politicians I vote for very rationally, but I also have to realize I'm driven by more complex interactions between emotion and reason. And you can't really get to that until you listen to people. And so I don't suggest that listening means you don't judge. I'm just saying that listening a little before you judge is probably a good idea. That's, uh, it's so funny you mentioned listening. Uh, so many of the folks that I've talked about this with have mentioned that, to take time to understand, be radically curious, as Monica Guzman would say, or um, Daryl Davis, uh, an African-American mm -hmm. great musician who's befriended now almost 200 KK, members of KKK and mm -hmm. has helped quite, quite a few of the dozens, you know, and dozens 
relinquish their their uh, or convert, if you will, um, and relinquish their uh, their identity, uh, identifying with the KKK. So, but he said, "Listen," is his theme. Listen, uh, just sit down and, and grab a drink, uh, get get a meal, you know, uh, get to know the human being. So, a uh, couple more questions, and then and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Do you have any questions for me and or Kim? Uh, well, for you, Corey, uh, I would love to spend a couple hours hearing about your your religious background and then transition. Um, but uh, for you, I guess I would ask, do you feel comfortable where you're at? And for Kim, knowing a bit more about Kim's, uh, you know, politics and life, asking her if if she regrets the choices she made uh, and, and where it's landed her. Those are the kinds of things I'm interested in. How did you get where you got and are you glad you got there, I guess, would be the, the summary of that. Well, being, you know, the child of New York Jews and from that good New York Jewish Eastern European yeah. descendant of, of Jews, if you're not suffering, you're not trying. So <laughs> am I comfortable? The answer is no. I feel obligated to say that. However, I started meditating about a year ago. And uh, I, I'm, I'm learning to be more comfortable with my uncomfortableness. <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way to answer that. Kim, what do you think? I, I, I mean, I, I mean, the simple answer is, is yes, I have tons of regrets. No, I am not happy with where I am. I, I wonder, is it the transitional age that we are, you know, Corey and I are mm -hmm. essentially the same age. And so maybe it's a moment in time where that's appropriate. I would say more than anything, which I think, you know, is part of why our conversations are so helpful to me, Bob, is you give me language for things that I'm feeling. And I sometimes, you know, I don't know how to articulate this itch that I can't scratch. And there's this point of now getting into an older stage where I'm supposed, am I supposed to just accept this stuff that doesn't seem acceptable? Mm -hmm. And so just on a personal level, it's like the kind of stuff like, you know, we've all gone through it where we like, I'm consuming less news. You, you, you know what I mean? The right, mm -hmm. righteous indignation, the holier than now, like how, how as a human being, do I, um, do I process that mm -hmm. just so that I can get out of bed in the morning versus as um, someone who's written the majority of my life and I have very strong opinions and I would say I especially of late have not been as brave as you, Bob. Yeah. But I, I have one last thought, and it comes from Noam Chomsky, someone I've been influenced by for you know decades now. And uh, it was in an interview some time ago, and, and Chomsky was criticizing some of the faddishness of the modern, you know, university, postmodernism, a whole lot of things he doesn't see much value in. And then he paused and he said, but I don't want to be too harsh on people who espouse these theories. And in this moment, it's just incredible reflection. He said, you know, it's hard to live in this world. And I thought, what a gracious thing to say. And also what a true thing to say. It's, you know, we, we live in an affluent society and a lot of us have more than enough, you know, in terms of food, shelter, uh, the basics. And it's easy to say, well, we should be grateful, but we've also 
created a world that's hard to live in. It's hard to make authentic connections to human beings. It's hard to find real community. Uh, it's, it, it's a more complicated world than ever before in history. And, and whenever I'm quick to want to condemn someone else, I often think, uh, of Noam Chomsky, a good, you know, East Coast Jew <laughs> with secular leanings, um, with that tradition, just pausing and saying, you know, it's hard to live in this world. And to remember that for, to be kind to ourselves and to be kind to other people too. It doesn't mean you excuse reprehensible behavior. You, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. It's hard to live in this world, but it doesn't make me any more, you know, charitable toward Tucker Carlson, who I think uh, knowingly helps undermine the possibility of community. And for that, I'll condemn him until I'm blue in the face. But in general, that's, a, I think, an important thing to remember. It's, it's wherever we're stuck, it can be really hard to live in this world. Like I said, so much more to talk about, but we have to wind it down. So before we, uh, before we do, uh, how can folks, uh, Bob, how can folks find you and more information about you and all of your work and all the great work that you're doing? Yeah. The easiest way is just to put my name in a search engine. And if you spell my last name right, J-E-N-S-E-N, E-N is the Danish spelling, not O-N, which is the Norwegian spelling. Uh, if you just put Robert Jensen into a search engine, usually the first page that comes up is mine. And there you'll find a lot of articles, uh, information about books, uh, a couple of books for free, including in a lot of ways what I think is my my most important book called Getting Off about the feminist critique of pornography, which is out of print, so you can read it for free online. Uh, and also an email address. And I'm happy to correspond with people, anybody who wants to take issue with anything I said, by all means, shoot me an email. Um, but it's all there online. Terrific. And Kim, how can folks find you online and, and uh, find some of your writing? Um, I'm at kimyega.com. I also have kimyega.net. Um, and I have a very weird last name. So if you put me in a search engine, it will probably come up as well. Y-A-G-E-D. Awesome. This has been really fun. I, I feel like there's so much more to talk about. So the, the hour plus is just not nearly sufficient. Oh, but yeah. uh, thank you so much for joining us, Bob and, and Kim. It's great seeing you as always. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Great. Thank, thank you, guys. Thanks, thanks so much. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us where you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Mm -hmm.